0: So as we start, I'd like to point out that a moment ago, there was nothing here. So now, there's this group emerging, this, uh, you know, gathering for a talk, I guess. But the invitation is just to notice the front edge of experience right now because that's going to be a key part of our practice. So another thing that that I could point out is that as I'm speaking and you're hearing these words, that part of that front edge of emergence is our relational experience. You're assessing me, you know, who is this person? What does he have to say? And so a whole, your whole life history with people has you feeling, you know, safe or unsafe, interested. Uh, In this moment, for example, you're as you hear my voice, there's uh, whatever qualities it seems to have for you. That there's a sensitivity to the qualities of my voice that, you know, that are telling you something, not just these words. So there's this relational moment that's kind of unfolding, maybe getting to, you know, over time, over the next few minutes, you'll watch and see how that changes. And all of this, of course, involves mindfulness, doesn't it? Like, you can turn inward and know something about how your mind, how your heart is responding to this moment, to me, to the Dhamma that I share. And right now, this is uh, part of our path. I mean, why did you come tonight, for example? Why did I show up tonight? Some shared interest, I guess, in the Buddha's teachings and what they bring to our lives. So as I speak and you listen, our minds, our hearts are aimed in a certain direction certain inquiry. So that's our practice together right now. This is a practice of right view. It's a path, Noble Eightfold Path, factor of right view, practicing, investigating what's true. Can we observe together? this uh, front edge of impermanence? Can we observe the human sensitivity in our relational contact? So what's actually happening? So perhaps you see an image on the screen if your eyes are open, and if not, that's fine. You're hearing sounds, sounds that come from this voice, this body, this body, the sound emerges, breath comes up, touches a microphone, vibrates, digitized, dispersed out to you. On your end, that same vibration, the same pattern, moves a speaker, pushes the air, moves your eardrums. So your eardrums and my vocal cords are vibrating together very intimately. Every sound I make vibrates your body. This sense contact. The Buddha was very uh, clear that attending to sense contact is a useful thing to do, and here we're doing that, but when this sense contact is another person, which is to say, sound, interpreted, voice, language, human being or the visual image of this Gregory thing. Light touches the eye, perception happens. What's perceived is not just colors and shapes, but a person. All of a sudden, millions of years of evolution of sensitivity are called up and the body mind vibrates with this relational contact as a particular form of sense contact, very sensitive for all of us, for everybody. It's built in. It's how the human species survived in the face of stronger, faster animals because we could work together. So this sensitivity let us cooperate, fight together, and those early beings that couldn't cooperate in their fighting against others would get killed, but also to nurture together, nurture our children, protect our tribe. Meanwhile, all of this empathic response is growing as a built-in capacity of our hormones, our neural systems, the structure of the brain. And now as I speak, that's all ignited, catalyzed into this experience right now. and so sensitive. And it's exactly that sensitivity then. It's also the basis for patterns. We want the pleasant, of course. The Buddha talked about kama tanha, hunger for, you know, sensations, pleasant sensations aversion to the unpleasant sensations and we want, that wanting pleasure drives us. And we go through the world, building up a personality that learns how to get the pleasure, the social pleasures, learns how to get identity, how to be seen, how to exist. The bhava, tanha, the hunger for becoming, for existing, to protect and survive, for me to survive, for you to survive, for us to survive together. We help each other survive, but we also, of course, threaten each other. And this is happening all the time. And the patterns of how do I survive? How do I get seen? How do I exist? How do I find allies and friends? How do I get the pleasures and how do I avoid the pain? And this incredibly complex, capable brain-mind-body-system is conditioned by every moment of contact as we learn, as we orient in the world. So perhaps you can sense into how some what you can notice of that sensitivity right now in hearing this voice seeing this image perhaps you can sense into the conditioned nature that with from which you hear me attraction, aversion, and even if it has nothing to do with this speaker just sitting here, can you feel the body sitting and how much does it feel like my body? I am. Can you feel the past bubbling into the moment with every instant, every moment of consciousness conditioned by prior moments, every prior contact? Can you sense, for example, the uh, influence of whatever you did today? I don't know what you did today, but can you feel it right now? Whether you were active or inactive, whether you had a lovely day or a difficult day, even the food that you ate earlier, digesting and part of how this moment feels. Every instant conditioned, every instant. Another way to look at it is the way this very moment is conditioned by your family of origin. You know, your mother, your father, they're sitting here (laughs) just in the way you sense the world right now. All prior relational contacts conditioning this moment of experience the world feels like this. And I'm going to pause for a moment and I'm going to ask for those who do have their cameras on to see if you understand, if you, if what I'm saying is making sense, maybe just nod your head or something so that I, okay, thank you. Yeah. So, It's this exact human situation of incredible sensitivity of the senses of relational contact being in the world and all of the wanting the pleasure and not wanting the pain, wanting to exist and protect our existence and the world is out of our control. So we can't get what we want. When we get it, doesn't stay. You know the story, that's not new, but that's exactly where we get tangled, right? Our jobs, striving for success, striving for the pleasure of the money that comes in, that provides the lovely things, that provides the prestige, that provides the sense of identity. our friendships providing a sense of place. And things happen and life is complex. And somehow we get out of touch. Somehow we lose contact with this fact and we fuse with experience and we spend our days and our nights lost in our fabricating minds. And however we were raised, whatever habits we came up with, you know, to cope with the world that determines this thing that we do, the next thing we do, the way we relate to each other, the choices we make, except when there's mindfulness. So mindfulness is like, you know, there's habit, 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 or there's habit, habit, oh, wake up. And in the habit, oh, wake up. And in the moment of waking up, enough, as the only time there's choice. The only time there's choice. Everything else is automatic. Now that doesn't mean automatic is always bad. You know, maybe your mom and dad raised you to, to be kind and generous, to not harm people. Maybe you didn't have exposure to systemic injustice or trauma to torque the system and create other defenses. Maybe you did. I don't know. But the mindfulness is the waking up temporarily so we can begin to orient differently. We can make a choice. But don't we spend a lot of our time unaware of this? Wow. The Buddha's description of that was that we're intoxicated, that there are these intoxicants of ignorance that floods the mind. And the mind gets flooded and goes for pleasure like... We want someone to like us and we do stuff that might harm someone else over here, but we're going and we don't know that we're causing harm. We don't know that we're on automatic and we just do it. Or we steal something, or we maybe just somehow don't behave well. We're, you know, we're overcome, flooded with anger because something feels insecure, flooded asava the asava intoxicants and we go through life intoxicated and we don't know it right it's like don't worry you know the drunk says don't worry i can drive and that's how we are with our lives don't worry i can drive my life is fine i'm awake i'm good well maybe sometimes awake is good but maybe sometimes we're not And so this Noble Eightfold Path is a path of detox. The ignorance, the flooding, the intoxication of ignorance has the detox practices of mindfulness, right mindfulness, and right view, wise understanding. You practice it. That's what we're doing right now. This is a practice of right view. We're on the path. The path is active right now. Right? So notice how there's this voice and you pay attention and you hear what's being said. And some perhaps useful understanding might arise. That's exactly the Buddhist description of the necessary conditions for right view, the voice of another and wise attention. Necessary conditions.
1: I didn't get that. Could you try again?
0: No. Maybe you got it better than she did. So wise attention in the voice of another could be a dhamma teacher like this, but it could be any good spiritual friend who's giving some words that are a benefit. And you are a spiritual friend when you share with others some wise understanding. So that's a way of sort of countering the... Avijja, ah, ah, not knowing, ah-vija, not knowing, ignorance. So we counter the ignorance with practice, like this. This is what we're doing, countering ignorance. But also, you know, society is a flood, <laughs> you know, the systemic flood, not just our personal flood, the media flood the flood of cultural values that favor excitement consuming. Actually that favor, you know, collective hatred and some, you know, pretty difficult stuff. And we swim in this system. We are part of the system. We're not separate units. And this is where our path takes place. It's not some isolated, you know, vacuum where ideal conditions are set up. It's just like this, in the thick of it. This is where our path happens. Every moment. every moment so that's the kind of the key message that I'd like to offer if every moment is conditioned by every prior moment then how can any moment not be path either path towards confusion some kind of continued hell or path towards waking up and actual joy, insight, harmlessness, and good. How could any moment not be part of that process? It's not possible. Do you see what I mean? It's just not possible because of the way the mind, the body mind works. Every moment is conditioned and what comes next conditions the future, the the entire future of your life, our lives. So naturally every moment is going to influence and the path can be at work or not. I mean, something's gonna happen one way or another. Will it be skillful? Will it be smart? Will it be wise? So I'd like to invite you into Uh, small groups to explore this because uh, to just think about this with me doing all the talking rather than tap into your own experience does not allow this to come to life. And in support of your investigation of this conditioned nature. Um, I'd like to invoke one of the Insight Dialogue meditation instructions. Very, very simple. Pause. Not much simpler than that, right? But when we speak, um, pausing is not necessarily our usual way of speaking. And the pause is simply waking up in the moment with sati, with mindfulness, here and now. But if you offer yourself mentally the guideline, pause, and then take a moment and really find out what's going on in the mind, then when you speak might have some of that truth power. You find something, you discover something, but you're not practicing alone, you see. So a fundamental principle here, and it's operating right now as I'm speaking, is that if I'm practicing sati, if I'm developing mindfulness right now, and you're with me with the intention to be more awake, to develop mindfulness, then we become like, we mirror that mindfulness for each other. So pausing before you speak, while speaking. When you're finished speaking, it's kind of like brightening the mind and essential also while listening, pausing while listening. What does that mean? You're not talking, how can you pause? Pausing from the inner flux, the inner speech, the activities, sometimes judgments, sometimes just commentary, sometimes distraction. And you pause and you come home. And the specific meditation instruction of pause is a real support for that. Brings you right to this front edge of experience. Pause into this unfolding edge that we've been touching. So If you want to uh, take a moment, and uh, if you know how to rename yourself uh, near your you know, near your name, there's uh, several dots, blue dots, if you put your mouse over your image and you click on those three blue dots over your image. And one of the options is Rename the bottom option, and you can do the following. Uh, put A before your name uh, for just normal participation. Oh, no, let's put A if you prefer a BIPOC affinity group. And if you're not BIPOC, then put B. And that will be almost everybody that I can see on the screen, but not everybody. So it's your choice. And it's, and the, the affinity group is not required. It's just an option for some people find greater safety in that. And if you prefer to not enter into insight dialogue practice, put an X before your name, and you will be brought to a room where you can just rest in silence. The recommendation is that you practice because uh, it will enrich and will be following on from there. It actually is part of the teaching, but there's no obligation whatsoever. So there will be groups of three, and wherever there are two people on a screen, um Miru, if that could count as two people, that would be good. I know it's a little more difficult for you, but if you can do that
1: So <clears throat> it would be the two people per in, in a group. Got
0: it. Yeah, so that so it would be one. Yeah, if you could yeah, then then you can't do it automatically is the point. So Does anybody have any questions so far? I'll be giving a contemplation what you talk about. Don't worry about that.
1: Gregory, did you say you wanted groups of two or three?
0: I think we'll go for groups of three, because that way there's this sort of a greater safety in it, actually. okay. So while Miru is kindly working out the groups, uh, and remember that you want to change your name to put an A for if you want an affinity group, B for uh, everyone else, mostly and X if you prefer to remain silent. And then I see some are just leaving, so that's fine too. Okay? So here's what the contemplation is for this first time together. With pausing as being your primary practice, even more important than what you say. When you pause, can you sense in this moment the conditioned quality of the mind and what's it feel like to kind of be you you know to have all of that conditioning right into this moment and just ask yourself could a part-time path provide freedom from all of this conditioning. So touch into the conditioned nature. What's it feel like? And just, you know, what might you have to say about a part-time path, being able to work with the totality of your life conditioning? So, the first speaker, you, when you go into your breakout room, decide on a first, second, and third speaker. Five minutes, then the next speaker, five minutes, then the next five minutes, and then you'll have seven minutes open without taking turns. But the seven minutes, you're going to get a different prompt. And I'll tell you what that is. Ask yourself, if you can sense the possibility in this very life of being more awake, more skillful, can you sense that possibility? First, you're touching the conditioned nature, and you're investigating, can I be free from that? Is more freedom possible? Prompts will be provided on the screen at, at the beginning, five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, and then opening into this last contemplation altogether. You'll be offered that support.
1: We're, we <clears throat> yeah, we're ready to go. Um, just one clarifying question. Did, did you mean to provide a prompt through the uh, breakout room broadcast or did you want them to come back to the main room?
0: Oh, no, let's do it through the broadcast because it takes too much time. Yeah, okay. Okay, so pay attention to the- So friends, I hope that was useful. I'm so aware of you know, bringing in a topic as large as all of life and uh, the Buddhist path (laughs) and having an hour and a half. It's, you know, I'm sort of sitting in that little uh, crunch. But, yeah, we're in it together now. So, I guess part of what I'm hoping uh, began to pop its head out was a sense of the condition complexity of this life, of being together, of being so sensitive, and that there can still be wakefulness, and that wakefulness is the portal, that's the doorway. But if the path were only mindfulness, then we would call it the onefold, the noble onefold path. You know, it's a noble eightfold path. And the question that I asked, you know, really, was uh, how can we live this life? so that the totality of the path is present in the totality of our lives, that it's not a separate thing because it, it isn't, you know? But how to realize that, how to live that. So here's a way of thinking about it. If we assume that when the Buddha offered the Noble Eightfold Path, he was offering it to encompass the whole of our lives, then every path factor has to cover enough territory that taken all together, nothing is left out. Nothing is left out. But when we come to our meditation groups or we sit on our cushion, we're mostly working with mindfulness, maybe some samadhi, Occasionally, we'll get a Dhamma talk for right view. But how do, we, how do we manage, how do we live into all of those other times and the breadth and depth of the path in, in aggregate, in its totality? So, for example, what is right intention? What does that mean? What does that even mean? To practice right intention, not what is the right intention. Just like right view is not what is the right view. Oh, you know the Four Noble Truths, you know cause and effect. You know, you know, Anicca, Dukkha, not I am suffering, not self. No, those are just views. Right view as a path factor, as a practice. Like we're doing now, this is practicing right view, the voice of another and wise attention and the, for example, the Buddha named five things to develop right view. One of them you're very familiar with will be you know, um, uh, insight practice, if you will. Another that you would be aware of would be morality, but you also have learning. He talked about learning being a practice of right view. Discussion being a practice of right view. Practices. So where do you practice right view? Well you read Dhamma books, you go to Dhamma talks, that's practicing right view. What do you think about? What do you ponder? reflection those are practices of right view what do you contemplate those are practices of right view so now we begin to get a sense of broadening out the path a little bit but when there's a understanding of some sort when we realize that we can't constantly feed these hungers and expect to ever get satisfied fully and lastingly right it's not going to work then we say wait a minute i'm not going to spend all my time trying to bulk up on pleasure because at some point i think it'll be enough or to bulk up on the things that satisfy my identity like people saying good things about me or accomplishing a lot of stuff and eventually it'll be enough it's never enough but then you realize that and so your sense of like what's worth doing shifts said that's not going to work what will work you start looking at what might work you realize that oh kindness works compassion works giving works care works relinquishment rather than feeding works and that's what begins to guide activities and so how do you practice That shift, how do you shift your intention? How do you do that? Well, there's a lot of things that you're already doing for practicing right intention. So for example, how many of you have either Buddha images or photographs of people you love or something around your house? That's a practice of right intention. Because when you see that photo of the person you love or a photo of your teacher or a photo of, I mean, an image of the Buddha or something like that, it reminds you and inclines the mind that direction. How many of you have ever made a commitment or taken a vow of any kind? Any kind, really, you know, a wholesome vow, right? Well, that's a practice of wise intention. You're aiming the mind intentionally. Or have you ever gone into a meeting and practiced what I call episodic wise intention said just for this meeting, I'm not going to scream at this person. I'm not going to fall into anger or when I meet with this person, I'm not going to, you know, uh, let's say get lost in a s- selfish, you know, self absorption. I'm going to really listen to them. Right. That's an episodic practice that just for this meeting, I'm gonna set my mind in a good direction. That's a practice of right intention, episodic right intention. A marriage vow, that's a lifetime, what I call an overarching right intention of appropriate sexuality and care and all the other things that would go with marriage or any other vow that you've taken. Plans and strategies are practices that have embedded in them intentions. Will they be wise or unwise? And the more you develop clear understanding of right view as practice and right intentions, practices of right intention, like you go to, let's say, a Sangha meeting with San Francisco Insight, And you know it's a practice to guide the mind. Am I right? I mean, that's what you're doing, basically. So that's a practice of both right view and right intention. See what I'm saying? So getting a sense of the path. Now, all of the time, intention isn't forming and reforming. View is forming and reforming. But now you can do it intentionally, and you can import, if you choose to, By practicing the path factor, you can import certain right-view practices. You can, say, reflect during the day on, for example, what do you know, impermanence, any old time. And that's an ongoing, embedded-in-your-life practice of right-view, not just mindfulness, right? So the path gets wider, gets more robust, more texture to it. Right speech, right? Now that looks like a practice. So this is where things get a little more concrete. We say, okay, I know, okay, so I'm going to work on not lying and, you know, all that sort of aspect of right speech. Speaking only what's true, but also speaking only what's beneficial. I'm not going to just blab a lot pointlessly. I'm not going to speak harshly. And, but is that all right speech is? Can that cover all of your life? What happens when you get to art, music, photography? But let's take it, let me draw it in a little bit. What about your emails? Is that covered by right speech? What about your blogs? And now we can say, what about any expression whatsoever? It has an impact, a moral impact, and comes under the practice of right, wise speech. So, you know, whether you're at work or you're just communicating with a friend or you're, you're texting, right there's your path. While you're texting, oh yeah, this is my path. This is how it looks. It looks like a text on my mobile right now. So here's my path, I'm gonna do it. And you realize, oh my God, the path is alive everywhere. What about right action? Now, it's like every action. (laughs) So when are you not acting? When are you not doing stuff? So, I mean, the classic definition, of course, is the morality of not killing, not stealing, sexual appropriateness, appropriate, you know, not intoxication, and so on. But refraining from harmful actions, actions that steal another person's safety, that cause harm, is it really only just about me and my little separated world that I have to care for here? The whole message of right action is the message of relationship that we're embedded within relationships, families, groups, society, vibrating in these webs. And the Buddha was very specific. One who works for the benefit of oneself with mindfulness, with right action and so on, is a good thing. One who works for the benefit of another, that's a good thing. But the highest and the best is the one who works for the benefit of both self and other. So the notion of the path as this, you know, you as an isolated unit, me as an isolated unit, is blown up by coming to realize that the, you know, the, the, the nature of life is this kind of interconnected, vibrating web of karmic cause and effect. And so our path now we see is connected with all of our activities for non-harm and for the benefit of beings. So all of our social action, climate action, all of that is path. Just like what we read when we read a book is path. Or having a Buddha image is path or writing an email. What about right livelihood? Now you see the monastics got a lot of direction from the Buddha. Hundreds of rules about how to work with their so-called requisites, the food, shelter, clothing, medicine. But what did what did we lay people get? don't have wrong livelihood is the main thing we got no you know trading in poisons trading in living beings and trade you know doing livelihoods that would kill and so on why why is that important because we're doing it most of the day every day how does it impress the mind how does it impact the world and we see that it's harm and harm, internal and external, and it's a big mess, what kind of path are you gonna have? But what about, the rest of, what about the rest of our livelihood, which is our use of resources, how we earn our resources, and how we spend our resources? We say, oh, right, that's what livelihood is about. And all of a sudden, money, is part of the path. Every time you touch money, credit cards, Venmo, PayPal, I don't care what. It's all path moments. And there's a moral impact. Your credit card statement is a moral document. It's a it's a it's a window into the mind. And if we look at it in terms of requisites, which is one of the ways that I talk about it in my book. Then we see that, oh, okay, I may not be a monastic, but I'm going to take that on because it gives me a framework for my whole life path that's more than just my meditation practice. So, what is the clothing I wear? Requisites, right? Is it wasteful? How is it made? What's my responsibility? How's the flow? What about... My food, where does it come from? How? What are my consumption patterns? What's the moral impact of what I eat? And my lodging, you know, is my home too large, too small? Am I overdoing it, underdoing it? What's the impact of how I live? How does that flow of resources in my lodging just the way a monk or a nun would have some rules about lodging we're not talking rules we're talking places to wake up to our impact in the world and realize that's the path operating full time nothing left out right and what about other requisites like medicine or communications Transportation. All of this is fitting within sila, morality, harmlessness in the world, impacting good, caring about others, those who don't have homes or don't have transportation. We realize wow, this path is like everywhere. Then you get to right effort. And now we're saying, ah, okay. The classical right efforts boil down to a really simple formula. Out with the bad, in with the good. Abandoning the unwholesome, cultivating the wholesome. That's the basics. So what we see here is the training of the mind and the energy, the vitality, the perseverance on the path itself. So if we talk about abandoning the unwholesome, unwholesome patterns of of the heart, now all of a sudden all the activities that are part of that, you realize, oh, that's part of my path when I go to psychotherapy. That's path. If it's got the right view element, right? When I cultivate the wholesome. Now, obviously, when you cultivate mindfulness in meditation or when you cultivate metta, when you cultivate compassion, these are cultivating the wholesome. But aren't there a hundred other ways you cultivate the wholesome? Giving, to give is to cultivate the wholesome quality of opening the hand, opening the heart. The Buddha said before any of this Eightfold Path stuff, any Four Noble Truths, noticing about suffering or any of that, the first thing he said is giving. That's the first thing on the path before anything. Then morality. And eventually we get to the wisdom teachings, but really basic is that's cultivating the wholesome. And do we work it? You know, how do we how do we tip when we, you know, receive a service or something like that? Giving that moment of the direction of the mind is an intention, wholesome intention. But it's also an action, and you're bringing the energy to remember, that's right effort. See, all these path factors are not separate, they're all connected. Now, right mindfulness, we know from our experience with formal meditation and mindfulness is such a uh, popular uh, aspect of the path, well-known and so on. I would almost say I could skip over it, but I'm not going to because when we talk about a whole life path, mindfulness is going to be what makes it possible. Buddha taught in multiple places three path factors, run and circle around all the other path factors, right mindfulness, right view and right effort. Right view, because like if you don't even know wholesome from unwholesome, there's no path. So any path energy is going to have that right view aspect. Right effort, because without the energy, without the, you know, kind of the movement of the body-mind with vitality or with commitment, you know, it's the, it's the right effort to actually do the thing. To, to speak wisely, the right effort to have the, the Dhamma conversation for right view and so on. And right mindfulness is the mindfulness to actually engage, to not be following the habit mind, one thing after another until you die. So right view, right effort, and right mindfulness infuse every other path factor. And right samadhi, calm, concentration, stillness, is that only for retreat? We know it's critical to the insight path, to the insight aspects of the path. But the thing, what I'd like to call up, especially in our frantic culture, is that inclining our lives towards greater tranquility and calm, towards gathering the mind, in whatever form we do it, will support samadhi. And when it's right samadhi, which is to say aimed at the purposes of the path, which is freeing the heart, developing the wholesome relationships that are free, and, you know, inclining towards a liberated society, then that samadhi, you know, uh, is a liberating samadhi, sees through, enables the mind to be still enough to see what it can't see when it's frantic, agitated so the point in general is that the path is always happening and that the noble eightfold path if we engage all these things together it's a detox practice it wakes us up it, it brings about this removal if you will of the trance of this conditioned life and. A, a, a true and deep and I would say profound kindness and care and peace is possible in this very life you know not as like a fairy tale not as something that each and every one of you would not be capable of you are capable of it and the Noble Eightfold Path is a framework for that it's like how, how can I get some traction on the totality of my life That's kind of what I would, you know, maybe condense. How do I get traction in the totality of my life? So I wish you well in that. It's all around you all the time. Um, I wrote a book about this. So I would recommend that book. It's called A Whole Life Path. And um, uh, you could go to the uh, insightdialogue.org or gregorykramer.org, I think, Uh, and you can find out about that. And uh, uh, I'll just see if Nina has anything to say as we come towards closing.
1: right, thank you so much, Gregory. I'll give you uh, a chance to close us out in a few minutes, but if um, Paul, if you're willing to say a little something about Donna and then I'll do a little announcement and then Gregory will will close out the evening.
2: Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Paul Irving, one of the board members. I'd like to invite you to uh, check in with yourself about generosity. For 2,600 years, our tradition has operated on the principle of generosity. And I would like you to, uh, to consider this evening whether that would be an appropriate thing for you to offer generosity to the Sangha and to Gregory. And you can do that by going to our website. There is a uh, PayPal link and you can donate through that. And thank you very much Gregory for your generosity of being here with us and sharing your wisdom.
1: Thank you, Paul. And I did put the link in the chat for anyone who would like to just click on that directly to our donate page and, and your generosity will go to make an offering to Gregory and to support San Francisco Insight. Eugene asked that I let you all know about a retreat that he will be offering with darrah Williams at Spirit Rock um, May 26th through the 30th. And the retreat is called Aging, Dying, and Awakening. And this retreat is for folks who are 55, 55 years old and older. So thank you. And you can go to Spirit Rock's uh, website if you want more information about that. And passing it back to you, Gregory.
0: I think I'll just teach a retreat on aging and dying, not on awakening, because I know I can age. I know I can die. I've been there. So, um, but nevertheless, what really matters most to me, and this is actually true, this is not theater, is more than this um, offering money stuff. If you're curious and you feel some possibility of each moment being path. If I just got that one notion and that like the mind tendencies are tangled enough that if we don't really offer ourselves to it, that the tangle will continue. If we just get that sense of possibility, I'll feel like the time is well spent. So I wish you that. Uh, No moment. No moment is left out. No circumstance of your life not money not sex not the internet nothing is left out it's all path how right so with that in mind uh i've just closed by reflecting on the privilege that we have of our spiritual friendship of our community here even though i'm temporarily here it makes a big difference we can't do this alone it's not possible The Buddha said spiritual friendship is the whole of the holy life. Why would he say that? (laughs) You know? Because your, your teachers are spiritual friends. Your friends remind you to wake up. You remind them to wake up. And what a privilege this is. And to think for a moment of beings who are lost in suffering and don't see any way out. The suffering of homelessness, the suffering of being refugees, the suffering of being wealthy and angry and greedy, the suffering of fear, and just to let your heart vibrate with so much pain in the world. Not to to leave that out either. That's all path. And to let yourself be touched. And may our practice here, may everything that we've done together be of service to all of these beings. May our care for each other, our care for this path, benefit all beings. May all beings be free. And may there be peace. May there be peace. May there be peace. Thank you, friends. Go well. Oh, you know, I'm a terrible, terrible salesperson, but I will show you the book. There it is. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you, Gregory.
2: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.